Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Indeed, one of the high points of the Old Testament. And of the book of Genesis in particular. Despite the length of the story, I'm going to read the entire passage to begin. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham, he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, 
because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Imagine with me for a moment that you had a sheet of paper and a pencil, and I were to ask you to make a list. On this list, you would write down all the things for which you yourself would be willing to sacrifice for. What would you be willing to sacrifice yourself for? I imagine that the list wouldn't be very long, but there would indeed be a list. Our belief in the Lord, for example. Maybe our family, our property, our integrity, our freedom. Such a question or such a list is a fascinating exercise because it cuts right to our very heart. It exposes what we think the most about, what we value more than anything. But there's an even harder list to make than that. Let's suppose that I were to give you a second sheet of paper and ask you to create a second list, but this one's different. Instead of this one writing down all the things you would be willing to sacrifice yourself for, this particular list would be all the things that you would be willing to sacrifice your family for. I would hope and expect that that list would actually be much shorter than the first one. But I I would have to assume that there, there may still actually be a list. You may not think so. You may not think that there would be anything that should be on that second sheet of paper. You would think that the only people who would ever put something on that second sheet of paper must be absolute fanatics. The second sheet of paper, that's for some type of a radical Muslim extremist. Maybe in the Christian realm, the second sheet of paper would be for the super spiritual, like the, the, the missionary that's willing to go to the dangerous part of the world into the 1040 window. Or, or maybe the, the convert in a hostile Islamic land where they know that their conversion would lead to their death and the death of their family. Maybe in those extreme situations where the, the true, like the super fanatical, maybe they could put something on the second list. And I, I kind of think the same way, at least that's my instinct. That's the way I want to think. But what I know of the New Testament, I, I think that every one of us who follow Jesus actually have to put something on that second list, not just the super-Christians. I'll say this carefully. I see, I mean, I've got two kids sitting on the front row, a beautiful wife, three more upstairs. I'm not trying to forecast any kind of bravado here. I'm just trying to be as sincere, as transparent as possible. Is it really 
that believers should actually be willing to sacrifice not only their own lives, but everything to follow their Lord. Jesus speaks to this pretty clearly. In Matthew chapter 10, you remember it? Verses 27 to 29, you don't need to turn there, but in it he says, If anyone loves father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. If anyone loves son or daughter more than me, he is not worthy of me. There's your second list, by the way. And then he continues, verse 28. If any man will follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Whoever keeps his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, for my sake and the gospel, will gain it. The first list. That's pretty inclusive language. Whoever, whoever, whoever. So when we're forced into a corner, I think we know that there has to be something on the second list. I think we know that if we're truly a follower of Jesus, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is on that second list. But it doesn't make any easier the fact that we would actually ever make such a list. (laughs) I mean, push hasn't come to shove yet. Not that I know of, of anyone in this room, self-included. But if we were really ever in that situation... Like if we had to actually give up family to follow Jesus or give our own lives to follow Jesus, how in the world would we ever do it? Theoretically, we could put pen to paper. But actually, how would anyone ever do such a thing? If you were forced into that situation, what would happen? What would I do? 2,000 years prior to Jesus' statement in Matthew 10, we would see one who would be willing to pay any price in obedience to his Lord. What we have here in Genesis 22 is actually the acme, the pinnacle of the Abraham narratives. And we've seen this guy grow a lot. It's an interesting story because there's two things that get woven together throughout the Abraham stories. One is God's dead-level determination to bless this man. I mean, God is absolutely determined to use this guy for his purposes. And we see time and time again, despite Abraham's failures, that God's at work. I mean, he's given him some extravagant opportunities. He's saying, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will prosper you. And even though Abraham blows it sometimes, God continues to pour out his blessing on him. There's that one thread of God's sovereign power working through the life of Abraham. But there's something else weaving throughout the narrative as well. And that is, undeniably, the obedience of Abraham. It struggles, admittedly. It goes and fits and starts. I mean, you take Genesis chapter 12 where this whole thing starts, and he sets out for a land that he has no idea where he's going. But literally, the next story, you know what it is? It's him fleeing to Egypt because there's a famine and offering his wife away out of cowardly fear because he doesn't want anybody to attack him or harm him. And yet God will bless, but then Abraham will obey in other ways. 
He will risk his life taking on some foreign kings to rescue his nephew. I mean, he will continue to move throughout this land, acting as if it's his, even though it's not. He's willing to trust the Lord in a myriad of ways. And so we see two things. We see God's sovereign determination to bless, and we see Abraham's growing willingness to obey. And I'm telling you, if you've got both those pictures, you are seeing the Abraham narrative appropriately. Some of you only want to see God's blessing in Abraham. You love the Abraham story because you're like, yes, this just means that God is determined to bless us. He is just so kind to us, even when we act stupid. And some of you won't even acknowledge that. You only like the obedience of Abraham. Like, that's my kind of guy. He struggles, but he gets knocked down. He gets up again. He keeps moving. Like, we need to be more like Abraham. We need to obey like him. The moralistic, the theological. But friends, you've got to acknowledge both. You've got to acknowledge both. I want you to know that the faithful Jew, hearing the story of Abraham, would be both encouraged and exhorted. He would be both challenged and supported. It, it, it wouldn't be just all warm fuzzies. It would also be like a little bit of a kick in the pants. Like, I need to, I need to live my faith out like this guy does. And in this story, it is the pinnacle of it all because you're going to see God's provision in a way that you've never seen it before. And you're going to see Abraham's obedience in a way that you've never seen it before. And the truth is, every one of us in this room, this pe- preacher included, either need to be supported or challenged by this very story this morning. Because God does indeed call us to radical expressions of obedience. There's no denying that. But at the same time, something has to enable that. How would we ever do such a thing? And when we put this together, we'll see it in the life of Abraham. Here's the deal. You know how this story ends, but here's my question for you. Do you know why it ends so successfully? You may know how the story ends, but my question for you is, do you know why it ends so successfully? How does Abraham display such extravagant obedience, and how and why would we ever do the same? Let's uh, peek in and see Abraham's test here. I think it'll help us pass our own. It is, again, themed around a test. We see it right at the very beginning. And in verses 1 through 8, we find the preparation for this test. The preparation for the test in verses 1 through 8. But review with me verses 1 and 2, just to begin. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, the question is, is so important here. Because Genesis 22, it's a popular text to preach regardless, right? I mean, everyone knows that you've heard a message on this at some point in the past. Pastors, especially when they're visiting in other places, love to parachute in to Genesis chapter 22 because it's such a dramatic story. But you can't parachute in. You have to, like, trek through. Because it says, after these things, there is no properly interpreting Genesis 22 apart from an understanding of 12 through 21. What has happened up to this point? How is it that Abraham would ever be willing to make such a sacrifice? Well, finally, all those radical, crazy, outlandish promises that God has made to Abraham have come true. 
Abraham has a newfound capacity to obey because in chapter 21 we see that God's radical, crazy, outlandish promises to him have finally begun to come true. Namely, in the birth of Isaac. You have a woman, his wife, 90 plus years old, dead womb, and a child comes from her. And then on top of that, often overshadowed by the birth of Isaac, is the fact that Abraham finally receives some land in the promised land. A promise for seed, a promise for land. Abraham gets both. He's a new man. After these things, you need to keep that in mind. After these things, after Abraham finally gets the gifts that God has promised, God sends him a test. Now, like the Job story that we'll learn of later in the Old Testament, Abraham doesn't know this is a test. This is the omniscient narrator. He's letting us know something that that Abraham himself doesn't know. But it is a test nonetheless. You say, hey, what's the test for? Did God not know what Abraham would do? Listen, tests in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, are given not for the benefit of God to know, but for the believer to grow. Not for God to know, but for the believer to grow. Tests are opportunities by which we grow, by which we get stronger, by which we are stretched. And listen, it's not just for the believer in question, it's also for the onlooker. How do we know whether or not Abraham isn't just being like an eight-year-old kid on Christmas Day? You know what I mean by that, right? The eight-year-old kid, does he love the gift or the giver? He loves the gift. The parents give the stuff, the child hoards the stuff, they trek off to their room, they don't care if they see their parents for the rest of the day. So in this case, does Abraham love the gift or the giver? This text comes like a bolt out of the blue because you're thinking, oh, the Abraham story's coming to an end, we've got their happy ending here. And you think it's all together and you think, oh wait, it's so amazing to see how God has provided for Abraham. But the question will be, will Abraham still obey when that which it seemed like he wanted the most is now on the line? And so indeed, there's a test. To test for Abraham and for all who would look to him, does Abraham love the gift or the giver? And we see the test presented here. Abraham, God says, and he said, here I am. You already see this willingness to obey in Abraham just through his response. He said, take your son. Now notice this this description. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Do you notice all the descriptors there? He, He describes Isaac in three different ways. He describes him as your son, the one that that you own, notice this, and then he says, your only son, all right, so he's adding another modifier there, and then for the first time in the entire Bible, we see the word love, the one that you love. God is acknowledging that whatever is about to happen here is going to be costly. Even in the Hebrew, you can't see it in our translations, it says, take please your son. God is asking respectfully. This is not a normal command of God. It is is something very tender. It is very warm. It is very kind. But listen to me, it is very radical. Because he says, take him. Take him where? To the land of Moriah. Great, a trip, right? And do what? Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, we read that, and we are horrified. 
We are absolutely horrified that God would ask such a thing. But what is so fascinating is we have no description of Abraham's horror. All we have is just his obedience. You and I want to sit and have like a, a, a psychology session on why in the world God would ever ask such a radical thing, and while we're working it out, Abraham's obeying. It says that immediately, verse 2, he gets up, or excuse me, verse 3, he rises early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now, Abraham obeys immediately, but he doesn't obey very logically. Do you notice how the narrator presents a little bit of confusion in Abraham? He is shocked, and we see a hint of that. Notice the order. The, the verbs here in, in the original language are sequential. It's like he did this, and then he did that, and then he did this. What's the first thing? He got up early. All right, yeah, you got to get up. That's a good step. Then he saddled his donkey. Then he got two of his young men with him. And then he took his son Isaac. So they're all packed up in the van and ready to go, right? But notice this. And then he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And then he arose and went to the... I mean, like, he's out of order. He's discombobulated already. Like, there's something that stunned him in this. And so we already see some little hint that Abraham is doing the best he can to trust God in this very moment. But he obeys. That's the point. And, and he's on his way to Moriah. Look at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is a three-day journey. It, it, actually, if you want to figure it out, the distance from here to where we believe Moriah would be would be like walking from Naples to Punta Gorda. Now you're thinking, well, I could probably walk to Naples to Punta Gorda in a day or so. Well, maybe you could if you're an Iron Man. But I don't know that you would be able to do that in that terrain. It's one thing to be in southwestern Florida where things are flat as a pancake, but not in a place where there's actual mountains and trails and valleys and, I mean, and you're carrying around a tent, and you're carrying around wood, and you're carrying around offering materials. You've got two guys with you. It's a convoy. I even thought through it this week. I'm thinking, all right, well, I've never traveled by donkey. But if I did, I think I could push hard and get there two days. But here's the deal. Abraham's not pushing hard. <laughs> he's just making progress. And the narrator draws our attention to the fact that he's, he's turned this journey into a three-day one. He looks up and he sees the place from afar. Who knows what's going through his mind? But they eventually make it. Verse 5, look in your Bibles. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship. And notice this. And come again to you. And come again to you. We will, in Hebrew, we will come again to you. Now, logistically, they can't get the, the animals up the mountain. This is now a two-man journey. But Abraham, in some way, in some form, expresses a, a, a weird confidence that this boy's coming back. Now, remember the question we're asking ourselves. How would anyone ever be able to make such an extravagant sacrifice how would anyone ever display such radical obedience? Well, here's a hint. Just a hint, a small one. Both the boy and I will return. He continues, scene switches. They're making their way up the mountain. Abraham, verse 6, took the wood of the burnt offering 
and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. The, the word is butcher knife, actually. And so they went, both of them together. And as they're making their way up, verse 7 says that Isaac finally, you know, asked the question of the day, that my father, and notice the terminology, my father, his son, my father, my son. You're going to see an emphasis on father, son, father, son. My father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? If you're going to do a burnt offering, if you're going to present something to God, typically it's an animal, and the act of sacrifice would be that of laying it on a pile of rocks and wood, setting it on fire, and the idea was it no longer belongs to you because you can't use it, it's burnt up, and as the smoke ascended into heaven, it was symbolic of God himself receiving it. He's saying, okay, what are we going to burn up there? And so... Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. As weird as this whole situation seems, Isaac continues to journey on with Abraham. It says, so they continue to go on together. Because he trusts that his his father has this this confidence and belief in the Lord. What what is happening right now is crazy. crazy. It is absolutely confusing. It seems costly to Abraham, and yet things are settled, things are good. Isaac is willing to walk with him on this journey because he has this faith in his father, and his father has a faith in his true father that keeps him moving forward. And we're wondering, like, wow, this, is, this guy's really confident. I mean, because he's saying that God's going to provide a lamb. God's going to provide something. Even though he's told me I'm supposed to sacrifice you, God will provide a lamb. And then look, just this brief reminder. And Isaac said, excuse me, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, can I pause here and ask, um, if Isaac asked the question of the day for that uh, day, let me ask the question of the day for our own day. And if you've ever, uh, if you grew up in church, maybe you've never asked this question. I hope you have. Uh, if you have gone to a public school or uh, a non-Christian college or you have ever had non-Christian friends, you have been asked this question. <laughs> what is the deal with child sacrifice? Why would God ever ask somebody to sacrifice their own child? Uh, friends, we need a reality check this morning. I'm glad that we're in a church congregation and a setting and context in which everyone takes the Bible as the Word of God, but let's back it up for a moment. This is a crazy thing to ask, and this could open all kinds of insane doors. You don't seem convinced. Let me tell you a story. Maybe you know it. On July 24th, 1984, a Utah man killed his sister-in-law and a 15-year-old niece at God's command. After his arrest, he said, You would have think I have committed a crime of homicide, but I have not. I was doing the will of God, which is not a crime. He went on record saying that. 
moral disgust that something like this Utah murder comes into tension with the belief that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his beloved son as an act of obedience to God. Uh, Friends, do you know that every major atheist on the world stage today will actually point to Genesis 22 as proof positive of the moral reprehensibility of God? Just two examples. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, when, God, when religion becomes evil. That's the title of his book. You know what his main text is? Genesis 22. Or Christopher Hitchens. God is not great. How religion poisons everything. So, the question then becomes, you've got to be able to answer this for your friends. Could God command something ex- this extreme of a modern Christian? How would they know? What if they misunderstood God? Here's the deal. You've got to connect this. Abraham, friends, is not the average dude on the street. You've got to get that. There is some similarities between you and me and Abraham, but there are some drastic differences Abraham has actually experienced high levels of miraculous validation. Look, we got to be careful. We really got to be careful. We so loosely talk about God's miracles and the way that He provides for us. Some of you will drive around at the mall and pray and ask the Lord to provide a parking spot, and then all of a sudden you get one right by the handicapped spaces, and you're like, hallelujah, the Lord provided. Listen, friends, that is an extraordinary providence. That is not a miracle of Almighty God. Your non-Christian friends hopes for good parking spaces too, and guess what? They sometimes get them. If the essence of your testimonies of God's provision are things like, yeah, we, got, we made more money this month than we did the last month, and we didn't expect it, that's ridiculous. Listen, that is a general kindness of God. He does those things for everybody, but hear me well. What happened in the life of Abraham didn't happen for the dude in Utah. I mean, here was a guy who left everything and started roaming around a foreign country, and God provided everything. You or I have never done that. Here is a guy who made a boneheaded move in offering his wife to a foreign ruler, one of the pharaohs. And God would send plagues on the entire company, on, on his entire household, and he'd give him his wife back. And then on top of that, you would think that he'd be punished but he would cause Pharaoh to give him a bunch of money and livestock. I mean, here was a guy who actually would take on three foreign rulers from somewhere else just to get his nephew back and beat him in one night. We're talking three different kings who had dominated the entire Middle East, and Abraham in one night kicks everybody's butt and gets his nephew back. You haven't done that, friend. I haven't done that. Here's a guy who had a conversation with Almighty God about the future destiny of Sodom and Gomorrah and saw God, after warning, rain down fire and brimstone and eliminate an entire city. I've never seen that. And here's a guy who knew the physical impossibility of a wife who had tried for 70 plus years to have a child. And from a dead womb, a child would come. 
See, what Abraham has a special exposure to God that we don't have. He knows that the God who can bring life from a dead womb is also a God who can restore life from the ashes of an altar. He has a unique, miraculous validation by God. So if God speaks to him audibly, he has a track record of that, Abraham listens. How then does God provide for us today? How does He speak to us today? He has provided for us in Christ. That is the miracle that you look to for validation. It is historically verified. You can do as much research on it as you want to. The fact that there is one billion people today who claim to follow Jesus is a miracle in and of itself in light of Christianity's beginnings. You find your validation in what Christ has done not in the cool, nifty things that happened this week that made you feel better about yourself. So one, we look to a different miracle. We look to what Christ has done. And then secondly, we hear a different voice. And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings in the room, but if you're telling me that you are audibly hearing the voice of God, it's a longer conversation for another day, but listen to this. Whatever it is that God is telling you, it better not ever defy the Scriptures. I'll tell you this. Whatever God has said, He has said it in His Word. And God in His Word has never commanded us to do anything so crazy or so outlandish with our own children or families. He says we should be willing to And there will be, indeed, true cost to following Jesus. And some people would even give up their lives, and some people have even given up their families' lives and their conveniences to follow Him, but you are not being asked to do this, and so you must distance yourself from those who would say, like, oh, wait, Abraham's amazing because he's just the guy that took a leap of faith. No, Abraham had good reasons to do what it is that he did. It was actually the the Danish philosopher Soren Soren. Kierkegaard, who came up with this idea of a leap of faith. You've heard that, right? The idea that we just believe, even if it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Friends, faith is not that. Our faith is reasonable. It is, it is grounded. It is indeed faith. It is indeed trust. But it isn't a leap of faith. How many of you have ever done one of those fall exercises, like at a team-building event? Only half of you? All right, the way that it works is like somebody's supposed to like turn their back to someone that they trust, and then they fall backwards, and everybody's supposed to catch them. Now, to the, my track record is, is pretty good on this. I've never seen anyone dropped. But listen to me, friends. Every time I've seen that exercise, people are trusting others that they actually know. If I just all of a sudden just like didn't have any, wasn't talking to anybody and just fell backwards off the stage, I'd probably hit the ground. That's blind faith. Reasonable faith is you've actually know someone, you're, you've seen a track record of something, and then you trust Abraham has a reasonable faith. Friends, we have a reasonable faith. We have an informed faith. And so, time in on the story. I just want you to understand, though, before we keep moving, that God does not expect everyone to do such radical, crazy things. The Mormons in July of 1984 and the Muslims of the year 2002, or excuse me, 2001, are not justified in saying that God told them to do this. Nevertheless, Abraham could say that God provided. 
it is at this point that you should be able to see how Abraham continues with such extravagant and unrivaled obedience. He has seen God provide, and he knows God will provide. And hear me, he has the promise of God. Do not forget this. Genesis 21, verse 12. It is in the chapter previous. What did he say about Isaac? He said, don't be afraid to send Ishmael out, because the chosen line will come through this boy. He had the special promise of God that no matter what happened, God's plan would continue through Isaac. And so whether it was a resurrection or whether it was a substitution, he knows that God will provide. Yes, the special promise of God. What enables such extravagant obedience? It is the promise of God. It is the provision of God in the past, the promise of God for the future. That is how we make extravagant expressions of obedience for our Lord and Savior. The provision of God has not only prepared Abraham for this test, but it also enables Abraham to pass this test. Look at verse 9. This is where, as they reach the climax of the mountain, so also we reach the climax of the narrative. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then... Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife, the slaughterer's son. Now pause there for a moment because one of the pictures that is often misrepresented about this story is that Isaac is a six or seven year old little boy being tied up by his dad unwillingly and tossed on an altar. That would be horrific. But the the noun that's been used to describe Isaac throughout this passage is that of a young man. A young man in Hebrew literature would be someone who would be between the ages of 16 and 25. The last thing that we saw in chapter 21 is that Abraham spent a long time living in Beersheba. Don't think of a little kid. Think of a a grown man. By the way, he's carrying wood for a sacrifice up a mountain. Six-year-old kids don't do that. And here's the deal. This isn't just about Abraham's obedience, but it's about Isaac's as well. When push comes to shove, even though Isaac doesn't understand it, he's willing to let himself be bound up and placed on this altar. He had to coordinate with his father for this thing to ever take place in the first place. And it seems that to the very end, Abraham is willing to obey. And as he approaches with that knife, And reaches up in the air to slaughter his son, the text says. Verse 11 intervenes. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Notice the the dual repetition of the name. It's like he's getting his attention immediately. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Notice he is totally convinced at this point, and all of us who are watching, it's like, yeah, he was willing. This, this obedience, this extravagance, it was real. It was not just hypothetical. He was willing to go through it to obey the Lord. And here is what is so interesting to me. Notice what God says to him. I know that you fear God, meaning that you're, you reverence me, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Now, where did we last hear that terminology? It was right at the beginning of the story. And how was Isaac described at the beginning of the story? Your son, your only son, 
the one whom you love. Here and in the next place in the narration, the one whom you love has been divinely redacted. Abraham has no competing love. He's passed the test. For him, the giver is more important than the gift. And so it is in that point, it is right here, before there's ever a provision of another lamb, that God knows that Abraham has passed the test. And so God does provide, verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Last time he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw the place of death. Now he lifts up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram called in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. By means of a substitute, the plan of God continues. By the way, this was the way it was supposed to work in the Old Testament. Everyone would offer their son to the Lord, their firstborn. But they didn't actually offer them on an altar. They would offer a substitute instead. Here, God provides the substitute. The substitute that would be needed for the plan of God to continue. Now, friends, you can see why uh, preachers and theologians through the ages like jump all over this and say, oh, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. It is a, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Indeed, that as a substitute is provided, the plan of God for the blessing of the world continues. Th- that is why I think in John chapter 3, verse 16, that you all know so well, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It, it, it's a reminder, it's an allusion to this particular text. But, but the Hebrew reader's not reading this asking, who's the substitute going to be? They don't even know that there's going to be a substitute. This is what they know. The whole plan of God is wrapped up in this boy. Our future is wrapped up in this boy. I mean, they are really like the well-meaning graduate saying of their parents, without you, we wouldn't be here. Like, without Isaac... The nation of Israel wouldn't be here. That Their future is on the line in this story. And yet when it seems so dark, when it seems so ominous, when it seems like things are about to just totally end in failure, God provides, God provides, God provides. He always provides. They look at this and they remember the provision of God. And this wasn't just. Something for us to read into, but it is the desire of the text itself. Look at verse 14. So Abraham, providing some commentary, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. (laughs) As it is said to this day, so Jews up to this very day, at the time that this was written, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. They not only looked back to this as provision, but they would look to the same place as the future of God's provision. Uh, uh, One of you texted me this week and asked, Hey, isn't this the same mountain where Jesus himself was crucified? That's that's a really cool story. Um, That's not true. But I will say this. Moriah is where the Temple Mount today is represented. The Jews would always look to this mountain as the place where God would do something special and he would provide. And indeed he would. God's greatest expression of provision, the greatest substitute, the greatest sacrifice ever made for his plan to continue was that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself as he came to live the righteous life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rise again to give hope to all who would believe in him and turn from their sin. 
And if you haven't done that, hear me, friend. That is how God provides in this day. He, he provides by meeting your greatest eternal need. He, he has done that in Christ. And if you want the confidence to be able to obey Him in the extravagant ways that the New Testament calls us to, you're going to have to master the provision that God has given you already in Christ. You need to know that He has provided, that He will provide. He has met my greatest need, therefore He will meet every other need. God does provide, and He does it in Christ. Here's the deal. Don't worry, I'll flesh this out more practically. But there is no obedience. There's no obedience without trusting. Uh, when I was growing up in church, it was, church looked a lot like this one. Pews, two, you know, one center aisle. And at the end, we would always sing like the same three songs, like for an invitation, and people would come forward. I surrender all, just as I am. And when we got really creative... We'd sing Trust and Obey. It's a great, simple song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. I I like it. I I like the themes of trust and obey. But hear hear me, the song's a little off. It probably should be trust, then obey. Because, friend, you will not obey the Lord and the, the, the radical, extravagant things that He calls you to do if you do not first trust that He will provide in light of those things. It is trust, then obey. How was Abraham able to do this? Is it just because he's of a different moral fiber than me or you? No, we've seen week after week. This guy blows it big time. But he has learned to trust God for the greatest expression of provision. And that enables his obedience. That is what enables us. And so God's provision prepares us for the test. And it enables us with Abraham to actually pass the test. But what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of the test? See, this is where we often get it wrong because we close our Bibles here and we think, oh, oh, great, God provided, awesome. But friends, the story is not just about God's provision. It is also about the obedience of Abraham. Continue reading in your Bibles, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said... Now, here's the divine commentary on the entire incident. Abraham's given us his view. Now, here's God's view. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son... Notice the emphasis on obedience. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Notice, because you have obeyed my voice. What does God want you to walk away with from this text? Is it just his provision? No. It is that his provision enables obedience. What he wants you to see in this story is the obedience of Abraham. And you're, so you're asking the question, how in the world could anyone ever do this? Here's your answer. It is because God blesses the obedient and extravagant ways. Here's the deal. The truth that we know from the previous text is that God has already sovereignly determined to bless Abraham in a special way. There are aspects of Abraham's life and you're looking like, hey, this is a one-way deal. He seems totally determined to use Abraham. 
But there's also these, these passages that talk about, well, if you'll obey, like the sign of the circumcision, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. The only thing that I can deduce from this, if somebody's asking me, well, is this an unconditional covenant or is this a conditional covenant? I think that there are conditional and unconditional aspects of this covenant. Unconditionally, God is determined to bless this man. Conditionally, the amount with which he will be blessed is determined by his obedience. So Abraham's obedience here doesn't secure a special relationship with God. It enhances it. And that's exactly what happens in the text. What we have in this promise isn't the same thing that was said in all the other texts. We have the addition of some words. He says, I will surely bless you. We haven't seen that yet. I will surely provide for you. Surely is added twice. And then instead of just saying, by the way, that you will have descendants as the stars of the sky, he said that in Genesis 15. Now for the first time we have the additional metaphor of the sand of the seashore. And then, not only do we have that added, but in addition, we also see more revelation regarding this future seed, this future offspring. And we already knew that the offspring would consist of kings, plural, but here we have a clear promise that there will be one king in particular who will come and dominate his enemies, the one who will possess the gate of his enemies. It's like the, the volume of the promises of God were like floating around at a, at a five on a scale of one to ten, and God turns it up to a nine. What enhanced the promise? It was Abraham's obedience. It doesn't secure the promise. It enhances the promise. And the faithful Jew reading this would look back and say, I want to obey. <laughs> Lord, I'm going to trust your provision to enable me to obey so that I will further enjoy your blessing. Look, dear friend, I am not trying to be all health, wealth, and prosperity on you this morning. I cannot promise you earthly riches for following Jesus. But here's what I can promise you. The special blessing of God, if not in this life, in the life to come. It does mean something for you to actually obey Jesus. The way that I know that it will affect you in this life is peace and confidence. There is nothing worse than living a life of disobedience to Jesus, claiming to be His. Because you can't sleep, you don't eat well, you're always suspicious of other people, you're insecure. Friends, it stinks to live a life of disobedience to Jesus. That's all I'm saying for this life. But the opposite is true. You may not be rolling in the money. You may still experience physical difficulties. But here's the deal. When you obey the Lord, when you do what you know He wants you to do, there is peace, there is security, there is hope. That is the blessing of God. Listen, it is not just about blessing in this life, but it is blessing in the life to come. And I'm not just talking about heaven in the sky somewhere. I'm talking about new heavens, new earth. The Bible regularly tells us that we come back and we populate this planet to carry out God's original creation design, and it will be better for those who actually obeyed Jesus versus those who merely tolerated His commands if they were even Christians to begin with. And I don't have time to unpack an entire theology of reward, but the truth is your obedience brings real blessing. So obey. I try to tell my kids that all the time. I probably do a, a bad job at it because I'm always telling them, well, when we disobey, there's consequences. <laughs> I should change up the narrative a little more and say, hey, when we obey, when we obey there's blessings. And God does the same thing here with us through this text. To confirm this, I would only have you look at the very last verse of the narrative. Verse 19. Is this thing about the sacrifice of Isaac? 
No. Is it about the provision of God? Kind of. What it's really about, though, is the provision, I mean, the obedience of Abraham. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Notice how this thing closes with an emphasis on Abraham. They work together. What's the purpose of the test? To enhance the blessing of God. Now would probably be a good time to re-examine those hypothetical lists that we made at the beginning of the service. Pull yours out. Compare. For what or who would you sacrifice yourself? For what or who would you sacrifice your family? My prayer is that for every person in this room, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be on both of those lists. And I know how you feel. I'm still with you. I, I, don't worry, I preach this to myself. I, I'm at a point where I would say, like, okay, I could put them on the list. I hope that I would be willing to do that, but I'm not so sure I could pull it off. So I still wonder, how would I actually pull it off? Wherein lies the secret to such extravagant obedience? And this is all I've got. The provision of God. That's, the, that's my only hope. God's provision in Christ enables extravagant obedience. God's provision in Christ enables extravagant obedience. God's provision in Christ enables extravagant obedience. Therefore, the story both supports us and challenges us. Quite frankly, we need both. Like Abraham, God intends to grow us in all obedience and conformity to Him. And this process is called sanctification. And it begins once you've been born again and converted. And once you're truly saved. But friends, God is nurturing your obedience. If you're here today and you're thinking, man, I don't know that I would like give everything. I don't know that I'd be willing to sacrifice everything. Look, God is the one that enables you to be able to do this. Like a wise father teaching his son basketball, God nurtures our obedience. We've had several chapters to see Abraham develop and grow. I like the basketball metaphor because it is something that you can play by yourself. My dad did this with me. He would support me in my desire to grow in the game. There would be those times where he would actually like lift me up to make shots when I was a kid. Or when he would buy me the smaller basketball so that I could actually dribble. (laughs) Or his kindness in allowing me frequent water breaks when it was hot during the summer. There's that support, that that nurturing my, my growth. But my dad also challenged me too. I mean, he eventually replaced the little ball with the bigger one. He eventually started like, telling me that I needed to be running laps like around the house. It didn't matter if it was hot or not. <laughs> he eventually would enlist me to play against other people who would not pull back and just play passively. It was support and challenge. And so I would grow. Abraham has been supported and challenged adequately at this point. It's not all challenge. It's not all support. In this story, we see the climax of both. 
And every one of you in here this morning may need one or the other. God's provision in Christ enables extravagant obedience. And here's my question for you in closing. Do you need the challenge or the support? Right now, where you are today spiritually, do you need the challenge or the support? And think about this not only for yourself, but for those whom you may be discipling, your family member, your friend, your neighbor. Do they need the challenge or the support? Here's the challenge, friends. I'll I'll lead with that. The challenge is, have you truly sacrificed everything for the love of Jesus? I don't mean for this to sound like teen camp, but the truth is, every one of us should have willingly sacrificed everything to Jesus. Specifically, our bodies belong to Him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. May I be so bold as to say that that includes our sexual practices? Has that been wholly surrendered to God? Our bodies belong to Him? Our relationships with others, they're all for Him. And I would only push in on this. Again, I'm providing challenge here. Some of you have natural relationships that you think are all about you, but some of you may need to lean in on local church relationships because God intends for you to love other people in His body as well. Romans 12, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, are your relationships, are they His? Your resources. Everything you own, Mark 10, 21 to 27, it is His, and we should be giving it back to Him, using it for His purposes. And then finally, your ambitions, your recognition, what you see as success in your life. It should be for His glory, for the advance of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Mark 8, 34 to 38. So here's the challenges. What does it mean? Are, are we going to sacrifice our children on the altar? Absolutely not. But we will sacrifice our bodies, we will sacrifice our relationships, we will sacrifice our finances, we will sacrifice our ambitions. It all belongs to Him. There's your challenge. But here's the question. How in the world would any one of us ever do all those things? The provision of Almighty God in Christ. Some of you commend me for my grammar. Let me just blow it right now for a moment. You ready? got to get good at remembering the provision of God in Christ. you got to get good at remembering the provision of God in Christ. Friends, this has to be a regular practice for us where we, where we get back to the real need that's been met in Him and satisfied in Him. That's what provides us hope when this fallen world is pressing in on us and our own failures and just the difficulty of what Jesus has called us to do. I will leave you with this text. We read it in the scripture reading, Romans 8.31. Here, find your encouragement in this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all? He gave you his son. So reflect on his past provision, what he has done, what he has said, his future promises, what he will do, and how you will be rewarded.